we're back from what I don't know, but I am sitting here today with Mr. Gabe Rodriguez. Uh, he's our first guest on the Wages of Cinema podcast, uh, a new segment that we'll be trying out on the show where, uh, for some reason or another, I've decided that I want to pick apart people's brains who are creative and independent and, you know, you might not know who they are, but you should. So welcome, Gabe. Ah. Thank you, Jack. Good to be here. Good yeah. idea. Yeah, it's good mm. to be here. It's good to be inside, away from the cold, which we were just talking about that, so this isn't at all redundant. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not at all. But no. yeah, it's it's been a long and lonely winter. Yeah, yeah, pretty long and lonely. I mean, but uh, but we're in New Jersey now. Like, how, um, so you're from New Jersey originally? Yep, um, this same area, um, well, originally North Bergen, then Tenafly, and uh, my family's still here. Now I'm living in Queens, New York. Ah, so, but is that, so Tenafly is where you grew up? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, that, I, I just asked that because I, I grew up in Teaneck, and so we're basically, like, we might, it's like, it's weird to think that we might have crossed paths at some point in time even though who knows when that was. We probably have, and I, I, we're both born the same year, and we, I think we graduated high school the same year, too, so probably a lot of our lives overlap in some way. I'm sure things that will probably come up in the course of this conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, well, the movie theaters you went to in the area, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, so what were your theaters? You knew the the Paramus 10-plex? Uh, the three big ones, Tenafly, um, Closter, and then Bergenfield, where actually both of us have since played, because Bergenfield does the, the film festival. Huh. Yeah. It's cl- funny, I've only been to that theater once. Uh, yeah, that's in that little mini mall where they have yeah. Donna's Pizza. Mm-hmm. I have, it's an interesting thing, uh, the one time I've been there, I've, for some reason I haven't been back there since, but I went there one day before, uh, I had to go to work, and... They were playing uh, This is the End. And mm. um, the reason it was significant for me was because, um, with the exception of Interstellar and Inherent Vice, which mm. were by filmmakers who specifically sought out screening their films in 35mm, it was the last time I saw a film projected on film. Really? Hence, This is the End. <laughs> I'm 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 thinking Closter is actually where I first saw Contact, which you and I were just talking about before we recorded. Yeah. Um, um I'm trying to think of other movies that I saw there for the first time. Um I think Tomorrow Never Dies, the James Bond film. <laughs> Wait, so I thought though recently because on Facebook you've been posting about a lot of uh, okay, James Bond movies. So a, you had seen one. This is a funny story. So, uh, when I was 12 years old, um, my friends dragged me to see Tomorrow Never Dies, and I just remember being really sick and kind of not wanting to go, but, you know, kids that age, they're like, they're always running, they never walk, so I just, yeah. I, I kind of went and I was feeling sick and I wasn't really happy, and I kind of fell asleep during the movie, <laughs> and I think I threw up at one point, so <laughs> I didn't really remember. James, James Bond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I fell asleep during a James Bond film. So I didn't remember the plot of Tomorrow Never Dies, and something happened that day that since then, I had seen the plot, the, like, half of many James Bond films, but I'd yeah. never seen one from beginning to end. Yeah. So I'd seen a good chunk of Goldfinger, I'd seen a chunk of um, uh, Diamonds Are Forever, but I, I'd never actually seen any of them in their entirety until two, three months ago. Yeah. I, so I started with Doctor No, and now I've seen all of them except Skyfall. Mm. I'm one away from completing it. 
Yeah. James Bond is one of those series that I probably saw a bunch of them when I was around maybe 13 or 14. Like, they did used to do the James Bond marathons on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, I don't know, some of them, a lot of them blended together for me. Uh, you know, I feel like I might have seen one or two Roger Moore movies, but they... I can't really distinctly remember one from the other exactly. Maybe from the villains that would help a little bit. It's been interesting to watch them in order because you see like the how much they do blend together, but how the progression is very subtle, but it's there. And the, like the visual effects and stuff. Yeah, it, they actually they kind of um, you can break them by decade. That works out really well. Like the ones mm. made in the '60s were actually spy movies, and they yeah. felt like it. And the ones made in the '70s were all cartoons. Yeah, which is weird because the '70s is known for being mm. like the decade of gritty cinema, but except in the James Bond series, there it was the cartoonish era. Yeah, it's funny because I I picked up a bunch of James Bond books, which I haven't really gotten to read yet, but mm-hmm. one of them. Is a for your eyes only comic yeah. book from Marvel. Oh, I didn't know it was a comic book. Yeah, I have like a for your eyes only book, but it's not like how you usually see a comic book. It's a book that's actually like a book, but it's a Marvel illustrated edition or something. I don't know. But I wonder uh, when was that published? Uh, it must have been around when the movie came out. Okay, I think. so it's, 80, 81. Yeah. It, uh, so you have one left, though. You have yeah. it's a Skyfall to watch. That's, that's and it. I mean, that might be my probably my favorite one. Uh, based on what I've like seen of it, it, it looks like it's... I mean, to hype it up, but... It, it looks like uh, it's a step up from the last few that I've been seeing. Hmm. Um, well, you know, that's also... When, when Sam Mendes got announced to, that he was going to direct that, uh, you know, I was immediately encouraged that, okay, this is going to be something different. Because usually with the James Bond movies... You know, they're hired guns. Right. They're not, they don't really have a distinct style. But, yeah. you know, you get Sam Mendes and you get Roger Deakins working yeah. together. Then, you know, even before you go into the movie, you're like, okay, so what What are they actually going to do? At, you know, what, are, what what am I looking forward to artistically as opposed to uh, what, what's right. the chick? But then again, Quantum of Solace was directed by Mark Forster, who's an Oscar-nominated director. And he kind Was of dropped the ball. Was he nominated for an Oscar? Or, well, he's made Oscar-nominated films. Oh, yeah, like yeah. Well, Finding Mon- Neverland and... Oh, yeah. And, well, Monster's Ball is the one I oh, remember. okay, I forgot he did that. And yeah, and then... Stranger course, Than Fiction. Yeah, and now his career is uh, a little shaky because of World War Z. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I've heard mixed things. Yeah, but getting back to New Jersey. So, yes, New so Jersey. You, <laughs> Jersey, Jersey. <laughs> So, yeah, Tenafly in Jersey was where you grew up, and you were there for, what, like, your whole childhood years? From about nine years old to, uh, uh right up to college. Oh, so before you were nine, you lived, uh, somewhere else? North Bergen, New oh, Jersey. Oh, North Bergen, okay. Mm-hmm. See, I've always been in Jersey. Hmm, okay. Born born in, uh, Secaucus, New Jersey. Yeah, you can mm-hmm. sing a Bruce Springsteen song right now. Yeah, I, I it could. It sound authentic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not going to. <laughs> no, don't. No, no, nobody should. Even Bruce shouldn't sing Bruce songs. Anymore. Oh, no, I'm kidding. I, I like Bruce. Um, but no. So was it? Do you have memories from North Bergen? Like, it wasn't much different than Tenafly for you. Um, North Bergen, I it was. Um, uh, I don't want to more. I don't want to say more urban, but like it was definitely less of a community. Yeah. More like you were in your house, and that was it. <laughs> at, at Tenafly, there's it's more of a town. Yeah, and well, uh, North Bergen is that that whole area. Mm-hmm. It, I kind of blend that together with uh, West New York yeah. and 
and even Jersey City a yeah. little bit. Union where City. Where you get, like, I don't know if you'd call it, like, the sort of urban inner city, but it has that feel where mm. you don't really walk around there that much. Exactly. Unless if, like, you just got to get your groceries or something. Yeah, and I still know people who live in that area, mm. and um, more so on in the apartment buildings overlooking the Hudson. Yeah. That's a nice area. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, no, mo- majority of my memories are Tenafly, and c- certainly as a film buff and film enthusiast, there was much yeah. more going on in Tenafly. Yeah, so it was the movie theaters in that area. I remember the Tenafly cinema yeah. over the years. They've played a lot of indie stuff. I, I was going to mention that, like, for considering, like, the New Jersey crowd, like, that was a slightly artsier theater. Like, yeah. they played every Woody Allen film. They played yeah. Eyes Wide Shut. Um, okay. They played, um, uh... Um, yeah, like just, uh, it was a, it was an artsier crowd. They still have sort of, they still have artsier movies. Oh, they have like the oddball yeah. pick here and there. I remember, I don't know if you've heard of this movie, Big Fan. No. It's a movie, uh, it was the first film, aside from uh, Ratatouille, that uh, Pat Oswalt started. Okay. He plays like an obsessive I'm, sports yeah, fan. This does sound familiar. And he, he constantly like calls in to uh, like AM sports talk mm. shows. And he, you know, kind of goes crazy throughout the movie. And uh, I saw that in Tenafly. And that was, like, one of those movies that, you know, like, because Teaneck, that theater also sometimes had indie stuff, too. I went there a few times. Do you know Real Women Have Curves with America Ferreira? That sounds familiar. I I saw that at Teaneck. But Tenafly, they also did, um, they, um... A re-release of Rear Window, I think it was restored or something. Oh, really? But the first time I saw Rear Window was on the big screen. Huh. Okay. Antenna Fly. That's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, I don't remember them doing a lot of revival screenings, but... That, that may have been a special event. Yeah, because um, the, the interesting thing with... I remember it was always a thing to go to Antenna Fly because it was, it was not too far from Teaneck, obviously, but it was far enough where it was like... Ooh, we're going Ooh, into uh, We're going into the woods. <laughs> and this is into before I this is before I ventured out into other parts of New Jersey. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a scary yeah. place, Tenafly. It's <laughs> yeah, oh, not for the uninitiated. Oh, it's such a scary place with all those deer walking around, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure you've had to deal with probably. Yeah. I mean, that's only if you go up like where 9W is the highway. Yeah, a little wait, wait. bit more, or even closer. Yeah, or those areas, um, that area. But um, no, I uh, on the whole, like um, no, Tenafly I find kind of an interesting place just because uh, I worked there for a couple of years, uh, non movie work. But I would, you know, see a lot of people and, uh, you know, it's I don't know. But but actually, speaking of which, though, was Tenafly High School like what kind of experience was that for you? Was uh, that just like a typical suburban type of high school? You think? I would say uh, it was it was a good high school. Um, kids there, um, I mean, they were your typical high school kids, but I think uh, were a little more intellectual than mm-hmm. what I've heard from other experiences. Like um, the fact we were near New York, we were near uh, Broadway, so we'd often have field trips into the city. Um, I remember um, when they did a play production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Gary Sinise playing McMurphy. Uh, we we took a field trip to see that. Oh, sweet. Um, just, yeah, I would say Tenafly, uh, it, it was a good crowd and also very media-oriented, like the, mm. the um, you know, morning announcements uh, they did on TV and broadcast that. Uh, oh. 
every Sweet. morning. Yeah, it felt. It feels like I don't know if like Tenafly or that area they had maybe a little more money too. That yeah, I've been it too. Like, well, it's more so, especially when you get into like Alpine. Yeah, that's where you get the exactly. real super millionaire crowd. And stuff but uh, like the Alpine doesn't have its own high school. The kids from Alpine went to Tenafly. Mm, okay. So I know a lot of Alpine kids. Yeah. Um, and I never got beat up in high school, so that, that, that's a good sign. <laughs> so it wasn't that, so they were sophisticated, but they weren't snobby, you would say. Um. Or maybe some of them were. I think snobby is the wrong word. They were more just stuck up and self-absorbed. A, a mm. lot of, a lot of rich kids. There was the part of Tenafly we call the East Hill, where the wealthier So there was like a lived. split in Tenafly? Well, no, because they weren't really poor kids either. No, no, no I just, I, I asked that because in certain towns... Like, in Teaneck especially, there is, I don't know if it's definite now, but it used to be a definite split uh, between uh, what were sort of nicknamed, quote, Hebrew Hills, mm -hmm. which was one part of town which was sort of more like the north, uh, I'm going to say maybe the northwest part. It's like, right, it's like when you would cross Route 4, you would mm -hmm. have, like, this section in the north part, but then as soon as you crossed... Uh, I think it was either Voti Park or another road. Then all of a sudden you would get sort of like the black section of town. And you get something that's, that's sometimes a little more run down. I feel we were more integrated than that because okay. um, we we definitely had a lot of Jewish kids. I'd say that probably was the majority. And then a lot of Korean kids. Oh, yeah. That's something I've seen. Like when I go yeah. around Tenafly, there are a lot, of, a lot of Jewish people, it seems like, and a mm. lot of Koreans, which makes sense because... If you're right next to Englewood, yeah. and then that's right next to Fort Lee and Palisades Park, it all kind of blends together. I remember in gym class one time when you know the kids have to split into teams for basketball, and one kid just said Koreans versus non-Koreans, and that that was that was half the class. <laughs> and, wow, and it worked we, out. we've we've put our foot down, and we're gonna have this battle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but yeah, like. Well, we didn't have many African-American students, a few, but definitely not enough to be, like, its own mm. group. Uh, but I, I think it was pretty integrated. Like, mm. you, you kind of had to get along with everyone. Mm. Um, so Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, better to get along than to get yeah. in a lot of fights. Yeah. Which, you know, is, you know, is, you don't seem like a scrawny guy, but you don't seem like the kind of guy that, you know, if you got into a fight, you know, you no, wouldn't want to. I would not want to. <laughs> but I don't. I, I don't really remember anyone getting into a fight when I was in high school, really. Yeah, it was weird with my high school. I don't really exactly remember fights, but then it was Teaneck, so we technically had the Bloods in oh, part. There you and go. there was one day where we had to, like, like, we had to basically leave school early. Like, the principal told Ooh. us school is over because... The Bloods were getting in with the Crips, who were from Hackensack. Yeah, so, that's bad. a little bit different, but, you know, still, there are still some sophisticated parts. No, um, but I hear, like, other people talk about high school horror stories, like, all this bullying and stuff, and I have to say, we did not have that in Tenafly. Like, I... I noticed sometimes there were, I'm not going to say cliques, like, in, I feel like in these sort of North Jersey suburban areas... Like clicks, it's hard to kind of differentiate between that. You might have people who are more popular than others, mm -hmm. and then you might have students who might keep to themselves a little bit more. But that's kind of like as far as it goes. Yeah, it's, it's like Mean Girls, but with boys. Like, <laughs> yeah, like th there were the popular kids. There were yeah. the you know kids who were not as popular. I was not popular, but again, like, um, 
looking back on it, if the worst thing that happened to me was just that I felt kind of excluded, I had it good. I had mm-hmm. it. I'm much luckier than other kids who had mm-hmm. really bad high school stories. So, yeah. so yeah, I, I have but, positive things to say for Tenafly High. Yeah. So in that environment, like when, like when did movies come into that? Did your were your parents like kind of movie people at all? Yeah, both of them very artsy people. Actually, were they like in the creative world at all, or are they? Yeah. Kind of... Um. Well, my dad's a judge. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I hope I hope you don't. So does he ever? If you ever say to him, "My name is Judge," does he find that funny? No. In the rest I... of development. Oh no, he, he wouldn't know what that is. <laughs> okay, so that would be beyond uh, no. his knowledge. Yeah. I thought you were going to ask, has he ever sentenced anyone to death? Because that's the question I get asked all the time. Really? And no, he hasn't. Okay, so he hasn't done that either. No. Was he like a local type of judge? Um, like, like traffic stuff? It's um, it's the Civil and Appeals Court of New Jersey. Hmm. Um, and he's actually, he's retired now. So he's, he's uh, living happily in Ramsey. So please, anyone out there, don't try to kidnap me. <laughs> hold me for ransom. Because it won't, it won't get you anywhere now. Um... So my dad was a judge, but he was always very much into the arts. Uh, and then my mother's a writer and teacher. Oh. Um, nice. So uh, and poet as well. Hmm. Uh, and both of them had a great love and appreciation for film as well as for theater. Hmm. Um, so growing up, uh, aside from just watching a lot of cartoons um, and yeah, having uh, that gravitation towards wanting to get into filmmaking, wanting to do what those characters did. Hmm. So when you say get those characters, mm-hmm. what, like what do you mean? Like Bugs Bunny and <laughs> it's it's more well, like Bugs. Well, Bugs Bunny was a filmmaker. <laughs> no, no, I'm just I'm yeah, just trying to understand sort of that point of like where the filmmaking mm-hmm. bug right. sort of caught on for you. It was okay. A lot of people say like they there was this one film that they saw as a kid and made them want to be a filmmaker. And for me, it wasn't one film. No. It was just hours and hours I, of of I, content, usually cartoons, and it mm-hmm. was like. Oh, I want to have my own adventures. I want to go with my imaginary friends with these cartoon characters and do things. And then at some point, those little imaginary adventures became movies I wanted to make. Interesting. And then I went from being a character in them to uh, <laughs> fantasizing about making these so movies. You saw, so you put yourself into the cartoons, yeah. that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's exactly. Projecting yourself. Huh. Okay, that's interesting. Because, I mean, it's. I definitely think that the question that sometimes filmmakers get asked, like, what was the movie that got right. you into movies? That's that's hooey. You can't say that there's one yeah. movie. You might, you know, there might have been one movie that especially sticks out in your movie, but it's really, it blends with a lot of different movies. Well, I know people born in the 70s will say Star Wars a lot to that question. Yeah, like, that's kind of the stock answer. That yeah. Star Wars or Jaws. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, though, because when I, I do think about, like, 1993 being a pretty pivotal year for me, because you had... Jurassic Park on one yeah. end, and then Schindler's List yeah. on the other. Directed by like, the same guy. Yeah, directed by the same guy. I think that was not the first time, obviously, but it was one of those times I do remember when I was young where I, you could tell when, you could you could tell that there was a, a very different artist making one movie as yeah. opposed to the other. Um, so maybe that was interesting for me. Like, but it's interesting bring up cartoons. So. They they can be very cinematic though. They can, and especially like Duck Muck. Yeah. Well, you don't realize that a lot of the the Looney Tunes were theatrical shorts. And they were they were yeah. all theatrical shorts. The Disney ones too. I mean mm-hmm. that 
they didn't really have a way to show them on yeah. TV until like the 60s, really. And I think uh, Chuck Jones and Tex Avery should be considered like major directors of the short film genre because they are some of the best. Yeah, well, Chuck, Chuck Jones, I think he got an honorary yeah, Oscar. Yeah, he did. Uh, I, I remember. Years back. Yeah. Um, and and another film which this may seem totally random, but I would have to say like James Cameron's Aliens was one that seeing mm-hmm. that at a young age. So like, how young were you when you got into that? I guess twelve. So, okay, yeah, that is around the time that yeah. like Cameron films like if you grew up when we did, you know, it was Aliens, yeah. it was the two Terminators, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, the, and those movies definitely left an impact if you were really into visceral filmmaking aliens was a movie where even at a young age like i noticed the directing mm. and i it, it felt almost like a documentary like you were just seeing the mm. this world with the aliens and sigourney we were felt like a real person and these felt like real people yeah um and yeah there, there was less spectacle in that film it just felt very naturalistic mm. um and yeah to it's this interesting day, it's to my think favorites. about as naturalistic because again you're in space and you're following these marines yeah who are going into you know, wipe out these aliens and rescue a little girl. But there is, uh, but you can tell that there is more thought put in the filmmaking that it, it takes its time in parts. I mean, there are parts where obviously it becomes a big fast action movie, but like compared to certain action movies of today, Mm -hmm. you could see that, you know, aliens moves at pace that feels more natural. I think something about Alien and Aliens that's really good and often is underlooked is that they're, they're not scientists or astronauts. They're truckers in space. They're real people and they talk like layman people. Um, and that is what gives it that naturalism. And I think that's something Prometheus was missing. That's an interesting point. Yeah, that's a good point to make. Because, like, uh, what I've always what I've said about the difference between like Alien and Prometheus is that Alien is a B movie, but it gets bolstered up into A movie status by the quality of its yeah. directing and its script yeah. and the actors. Prometheus tries to show up like it's an A Hollywood blockbuster movie, but at heart it's really just a B movie about like weird black goo and yeah. like astronauts acting stupid and lots of gross things. And you know, it's I don't hate Prometheus like a lot of other people do, but I. I feel like they missed an opportunity. I do too. Although I think they're still making the sequel anyway, and and they're doing Neil Blomkamp's new take on Alien. Oh God, I want I I've, I'm wondering how that will turn out. I haven't seen Chappie yet, but I haven't heard great things. Mixed things here. Yeah, I mean he's a filmmaker who came up. You know, he's not from the he's not from Tony Scott's not Tony Scott, Ridley Scott's era or James Cameron's era. He's almost more like our age. He, he was, like, pretty young when he made District 9. I think he was 29 when he made District 9. That, it, it was the youngest that a director had had a, that budget. That picture. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, so, like, yeah, so we when we when so it was really in the 90s, like, when you were around that age, yeah. you suddenly see something like Aliens, and then, what, then you obviously come across, like, a lot of the big directors from the 70s and stuff like well, that. Well, two big things happened around that time. One is that uh, my mom always exposed me to foreign films, I think, more than your, your kid antenna fly would. So, like, hmm. growing up, I saw Cinema Paradiso and Fanny and Alexander and Amar Kord, there all, you go. all of which feature kids in it's them. It's really important if you have, like, a parent or even someone mm-hmm. older. Like, you didn't have... Did you have any brothers or sisters? No. Okay. So then if you have a parent, that can really get you into that. Mm-hmm. Like, that happened to me, too. 
And when we were in high school, we were lucky that there were three big foreign films that came out that crossed over in the mainstream. Hmm. Uh, Life is Beautiful, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Amelie. Oh, yeah. So there were a lot of foreign films those at that time. Those were pretty big, yeah. And those were, yeah, those were films which, you know, if you watch them today, you know, whether they completely hold up or not, yeah. you know, they might they might hold up in some places better than others. But, yeah, those were two, three films that were very dynamic and mm. different, and they somehow struck a chord, for sure. The second thing that happened is, when I was in eighth grade, the AFI started doing their list of 100 films. Huh. They did, like, 100 Greatest Films, which since then they've done a revision, revised list, and then 100 Greatest Comedies and so forth. And if you were 13 and you were a budding film buff, that list was incredible. It was... It was a guide to all these great films you'd never heard of, so but you wanted to see. Your, that was your gateway, was that list. That list was where I first heard of Dr. Strangelove and Dr. Zhivago and um, Best Years of Our Lives and Apocalypse Now. And that, that list was a good guide for the next few years. And then the for the, every subsequent year, they'd do like 100 best comedies and 100 best thrillers. And they, they'd do like the three-hour countdown on CBS. Mm. And I remember it was always in May or June, so it was the end of the school year. So it was like a, a little end-of-the-year mm. treat for me to always get that list. Like it, it was so exciting to watch this three-hour telecast. You know, for me, that, that, that was how I celebrated the end of the school year. <laughs> so you'd watch that and then... You would kind of like maybe like write down every yeah. movie that they announce, and then you'd have your list of things to watch. Exactly. And then when I got into college, I was lucky that I took actually two great courses. One was uh, Italian cinema, the other was religion and film studies. Yeah. And I'm that that was just every week you would watch a great film. In Italian cinema, it was. Uh, you get into the neorealist. Yeah, right? you, you get into Rossellini. Rossellini, De Sica, Fellini. Yeah, Visconti. Viscani, all of them, and then uh, the religion and film. It was Bergman and Kiristami, hmm, and Kiristami. I is there? I, I haven't seen a lot of his films. I've seen maybe just I've seen Close Up, mm -hmm. and I've seen Certified Copy. Recent, yeah, Certified Copy. I know. I mean, Taste of Cherry. That's what I, I was going to say. One of those big movies, and that is so. That has to do with religion. Um, has to do with how uh, a guy is like planning to kill himself. Yeah. Right? Has to do with uh, how meaningless life is. Cheery. It, it has to do with religion in a sense. How, how Bergman's films tend to okay. be about religion or lack of religion. More about life. how, like, the thing I love in Bergman so much yeah. and why he resonates so strongly is just it's more about how the characters are trying to work through mm -hmm. their minds around what this thing called God or anything yeah. is. I mean, when you watch like Winter Light or Through <coughs> Starkly, mm -hmm. uh, Seventh Seal, uh, you know, any of those movies, or especially up in yeah. Alexander, you see filmmakers just trying to ask, you know, what's it all about? Yeah. What, what are things going on here? I would say Taste of Cherry does mm -hmm. that. And actually, that's where I first saw Spirited Away and discovered Miyazaki in that in class. In religious class. Yeah. How how they connect that to that? Uh, or like all the... Where was it like kind of like as if if she goes into this magical world and it's like uh, hell? <laughs> it's more the the spirit world and how in okay. Japanese culture everything relates to the spirit world. Hmm. Also, um, the the film kind of makes commentary on capitalism in, in this bathhouse. Yeah, house. it kind of does. Yeah. Um, I it's it's been years since I've seen it, but the whole thing with the character of No Face and how he transitions and then changes again. Yeah, that's one of those movies I... That was probably one of the first 
anime films that I saw all the way through, and it was uh, mm-hmm. it was kind of startling because I think before that, you know, what we had maybe like Pokemon, yeah, as like our anime anime guide, and then but then Spirit Away comes out, and it's like, oh, this is something different. This actually has sophistication mm-hmm. to it. Um, so I mean, were you already like writing scripts and stuff in high school? Like, were you starting to work through things there? Yeah, I attempted to write scripts in high school. I think if you looked at them now, they would oh, not. That's no. whatever. Like, it, yeah. start, it starts with so many filmmakers that you write. Like, it's funny because my father-in-law said to me that, especially with him in college, with the student students he teaches, you either get the Tarantino ripoff scripts or the zombie scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that's usually the general thing. Yeah. Um, um, I, I wrote my Tarantino ripoff. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's buried somewhere. I don't know. I'm trying to think like what mine would be classified at. I'd some something weird. Mm. Some. It, uh, it it was more like um, well, I took a playwriting class in high school, and okay. that that was really helpful, even though it was a different medium. But that yeah. was really that was where I learned how to write a script. And I would say it was the end of college that that mm-hmm. kind of. I can tell from your work, you really love just you know hearing people talk and really get into that, and that's what you get with uh, mm-hmm. with theater most of the time. Yeah, and it, it takes a while to master that. To uh... a lot of it's just listening to people. Exactly. Just sitting there. If you're in a group of people, if you're the guy that's not really saying anything, you get to hear how people talk. Mm-hmm. It's usually an important thing. Like, so where, where so you go from. Uh, Tenafly, and where do you go to college? Then? Syracuse. Syracuse, okay. That's, and what's that like? I, I, <laughs> I always hear things about Syracuse that, yeah, they have the college, and then that's it. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the, it's kind of like in the middle of upstate New York, you know? It's like kind of middle of nowhere. Yeah, the, the city of Syracuse is very isolated from the college. I would say there's no real connection between the two except the games. Mm, um, yeah, of course. Yeah, there there really wasn't much to do in the city of Syracuse. There was the mall, um, and uh, there was a little bus that took you from the campus to the mall, and it it was it was a pain just to get from the campus to the bus station. Really? So yeah, I'll, uh, it doesn't really tie into this podcast, but I can tell you my vomiting story sometime <laughs> involving my long trip up to Syracuse and how hard it was to get to the campus when I had to throw up once. Oh, jeez. <laughs> That that sounds like a movie on the end of itself. Yeah, it was. <laughs> that was a horror story. That sounds like something that Coen Brothers might mm-hmm. make into a comedy. <laughs> but or the, a horror movie. But the college itself was a good college. Like, once you're there, you're kind of cut off. And but... did they actually... I mean, see, I always think of Syracuse maybe more for the sports. But did they actually have, like, an art film culture thing? They have a school called the Newhouse School. Okay. Which... Um, was really more journalism-based, like Ted Koppel's their famous alum. All right. Um, when I was there, they were starting to develop a film program. It was very much in its infancy when I was there. I've heard it's gotten a lot better since. Uh, so, you know, we we made films. They were shot on uh, VX100s, like this is before DSLRs. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I feel like... Yeah, I, that technology was actually... Uh, it wasn't terrible for what it mm-hmm. was. It was still a step up from... You know, like the little camcorders mm-hmm. that yeah. we used in the 90s, you know? So I feel like I got a filmmaking education. It was a little rushed and... Did they it, still have any film? Like actual no. cameras like that? I've I've never shot on film. Never uh, touched it in my life. Mm-hmm. With yeah. regrets. No, I mean, it's... I mean, I can't say I have a lot of experience myself. I just... I, meant, I asked that because, like, when I went to William Patterson, mm-hmm. I was kind of witnessing 
before my eyes year to year the transition from film to digital where i started right. off shooting 16 millimeter on bullexes and actually editing on steambecks and then the last year then we started using digital and like the dvx back then was uh that was like the like uh the man up in the mountain yeah the, the man like <laughs> far away that like this Wait, there's a thing called the DVX? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> nice. But we had good professors. Actually, one of my professors, um, mm. she was an assistant editor on Malcolm X with Spike Lee. Oh, sweet. And she had many stories to tell about him. Yeah. And I, actually, um, that ties in. We Malcolm X was one of the films we studied in yeah. that religion and film class. And so I introduced the two professors to each other, mm. and they did a joint discussion. And then it feels like you've probably come sort of full circle because recently you sort of did a lecture on Malcolm X, right? Right. So the college where my mom teaches, I'm, I visit there a lot. I know a lot of the professors. Mm. Um, and it's, well, my mom's in black and Latino studies. Okay. So uh, recently it was the 50th anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination. And uh, this professor friend, she was going to talk about him and also show the film. And I said, oh, I know a lot about that film. I can tell you a lot of stories about it. And I know a lot about Malcolm X just mm. having studied it. So they played the film, and I got to be a guest speaker, and Sweet. I talked about you know, just uh, the, the film uh, as a historical document, but also from a religious standpoint and its depiction of Islam. You really dug in there. Yeah. And I, I have to say, like, kids today are smart. Like, we sometimes, you know, we go, like, oh, kids today are dumb. No, like, kids knew a lot about Malcolm X and Spike Lee. Um, well, it depends where you're looking at. I mean, hopefully at that college, yeah, they do, they know who Spike Lee is, and... Mm. Uh, you know, some of them might need a little more education than yeah. others, but, you know, if you have someone in there like Denzel Washington, that yeah. probably helps a lot. Well, one of the things I mentioned was how Spike Lee, at that time in the early 90s, he had really marketed himself as the premier African-American filmmaker who made films on that subject. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he, he, there, was, there was no one else at the time doing it quite at the level he yeah. was, where he had that much independence and had that strong a voice. And I was surprised how many of the kids in the class knew Do the Right Thing. And they were like, oh, that's such a great movie. And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> so, uh, and I talked about how, like, Spike Lee, his career didn't quite go, I think, as he wanted it to. I feel Tyler Perry has become what Spike Lee aspired to be. Um, well, in a business sense. I yeah. think people, like, Spike Lee is one of those directors who, you know, he'll make, he'll make a movie that's not so good, and then he'll make a movie that's good. He, yeah. he kind of seesaws, whereas Tyler Perry, quality-wise, I think the consensus is that he just makes junk. Right. But he's very financially successful, so you could, could argue that. And I think, actually, uh, Spike Lee kind of has a beef with Tyler Perry, if I remember <coughs> correctly. I think Tyler Perry has successfully built a brand. He has. He, he has a, an urban audience that goes and sees all his films. And yeah, that's a well, lot part of, what... of that was also, you know, bring it back to religion. You know, yeah. he kind of cultivated an audience through churches. Yeah. A lot of them, you know, like, now I, I haven't, I've seen maybe one Tyler Perry movie. Um, not good one, okay. uh, to say the least. But aside from that, like, and throughout his movies, from what I've heard, you know, that's full of religion. Yeah. It's full of, like, you know, you better go to church. Right. You know, that's sort of different than, you know, when you watch Malcolm X, it's a little bit more thoughtful. You know, you might not totally agree with, you know, what Islam teaches, but it's really more about this character's journey through I, Islam. I think Malcolm X, the film, is just one of the best cinematic depictions of man struggling with faith. I yeah. mean, it, it just really shows how much, 
he changes not once but twice. And I, one of the things I mentioned was how there's there's kind of three religious narratives in the film. There's mm-hmm. the the Islam experienced by Malcolm. There's the Christianity of his audience and that the assumed audience of the film. Mm-hmm. And then Spike Lee, who is not religious himself, and he said so, but in making the film, he relies on a lot of Hollywood tropes, which consciously or subconsciously are Christian. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I don't know if I love it quite as much as Do the Right Thing, but it's up there. It's like, you know, one of his, his best for sure. You know, and if nothing else, Denzel in that yeah, movie. Yeah, Denzel is incredible. That's definitely one of the best performances of just, yeah, you know. I would agree. But uh, so getting back to the Syracuse, though, so... Uh, I mean, did you have any other, like, peers there? Like, did you make connections and stuff with people? Or what, what uh, was that sort of experience like? Or was it, like, not was it not memorable in that way? Um, I, I guess not memorable. I mean, uh, you know, you make friends, but uh, some of them are in New York. Some work in the industry. Mm. Uh, many are in L.A. But in general, what I experienced, maybe you experienced this too, is that, like, the, the four years you have in high school – resonate more with you throughout your life and the hmm. four years of college are kind of like this uh yeah outlier because i, I kind of had the sort of opposite experience in a way like I'm, maybe it's different i'm mm-hmm. not to put myself that much into this uh you know but uh, uh for me like high school was just like in a way kind of a blur <laughs> and whereas college was sort of where i was able to sort of think like have more critical thinking skills develop and more personal relationships but i don't know maybe part of that too is just because if you're up there in syracuse you're sort of cut off too from your experience down where you live yeah since i went to high school here in this area and i'm back in this area now and syracuse i have to say i've never gone back since graduating not not anything against it i just there's been no need to make Mm -hmm. that long four-hour trek to the snowy lands up there. So the and like any of the films that you made back then is that kind of similar to like the early scripts that you kind of just go like, eh, they're they're what they are. But you know, like, are is there any work that you're kind of like, oh wow, I'm kind of glad with how that came out. Uh, there's a few good ones there. I feel like a lot of those films, uh, they were group efforts or mm. films you made with other people. That they, they weren't like my, uh, my authorship had not really been established yet um so you were yeah. kind of working a lot of different positions yeah like you learned like they so this was the kind of school that made you learn a lot of different things in filmmaking for every project uh you'd have to pick one of four positions either hmm. director producer dp or editor everyone always wanted to be director obviously yeah um i would say um producing i could kind of get into editing i enjoy a bit I've never liked being a DP. I've never, mm. even though I know a lot about cameras, I would say you make me a DP, I get overwhelmed very so you easily. Don't, so not even just the whole. I, I can get the aspect of the lighting because that can sometimes be kind of daunting and challenging and stuff like that. Like just like you know, knowing where to put the light specifically to get a look can be troubling. But like, what about holding a camera? Yeah, I mean. I've been asked to DP on projects now and then. I always say the same thing, like, look, if you just want me to pick up the camera and hit the record button, I'll do that gladly. But, like, if you want someone who knows about, like, flags and equipment mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, how, how to shoot when we're on a busy street, uh, you're better off getting mm-hmm. someone who really knows what they're doing. Yeah. Also, I'm a, I'm a scrawny little guy, so I don't like having <laughs> to carry equipment and do all that. It might also be tough if you're, you know, like, I know that, 
you know, for for DPs who, you know, they have to do a lot of like steady cam work or they have yeah. to hold a lot of big cameras sometimes, you want to have a lot of upper body strength for that. Yeah, I hate that. And then, you know, having to <laughs> wrap up cords and stuff like the, the whole DP camera grip crew is they have it the hardest. They're usually the first ones there and last ones yeah, to leave. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah. you come back from Syracuse and, you know, we like how, how, how long does it take you to kind of come around to, I mean, I don't know what the process was for you, but like, you know, your first, your first feature, uh, return to Oz, mm-hmm. uh, the joy that got away, which I want to talk about in a moment, but what's like the path that kind of got you there? I decide from obviously the movie, right? Okay. Um, well, so I finished college, uh, I'm doing different internships around the city. Mm. Uh, I worked on The Apprentice for two oh. years, NBC. <laughs> um, uh, wait, was that, was that Donald Trump? Yeah. Oh, God. It's the... <laughs> so you got to see him kind of up close and personal? Yeah. Um, or were you like in the offices? For that? No, I was, I, I was what they call a clearance PA where you're mm. out with the crews, uh, clearing people who appear. But, um, this was the Celebrity Apprentice season, so mm-hmm. I got to see Joan Rivers, um, uh, Brett Michaels, who won the following year. Um, and I always, I have nothing but positive things to say about Joan Rivers, like, as much as people like to bash her. She was a very she, nice person. And... I, I think that a lot of that, like, her personality was an act. I think yeah. that, you know, she had to do stuff to make herself stand out, and people... You know, they either responded to it mm-hmm. or they hated You know, you weren't really that indifferent to Joan Rivers. You either yeah. really loved her or you really hated her. Exactly. But she seemed like someone who, you know, had to be professional for all those years and had to keep up relationships. So, you know, probably a very nice person, right? Very much so. Um, also worked Bill Moyers Journal on PBS. Huh. Uh same thing, Bill Moyers and his wife, both very nice professional people. Yeah, Bill Moyers' show was great. Some of the producers on that show, not so nice, <laughs> but that, that's PBS. Interesting, uh, yeah. Uh, and Make Me a Supermodel on Bravo, that was the other one. Hmm. Um, so um, it was, well, it, it was just a lot of those kind of uh, internships. Witnessing more so, it sounds like almost more TV than, than film. In New York, that's how it tends to be a lot. There's... Yeah. For, there were a few production companies that it, it was neither TV or film. It was like corporate videos or, you know, um, stuff for trade shows and things which uh, can be entertaining. And uh, But it wasn't really where you wanted to go for right. yourself. Like you were, you know, even since, again, going back to the cartoons, it's like I want to make my own world. Exactly. I want to kind of develop my own type of realities. Mm-hmm. Um, but... But then through that, like, I'm just wondering then, how does it come to, like, making a documentary about one of your favorite films? <laughs> um, okay, well, let's talk about Return to Oz. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about Return to Oz, because I just saw this movie uh, just this past week, and I liked it. Mm-hmm. I liked it quite a bit. Um, more so just because it's, you, you don't, you could not get that kind of movie today. Exactly. There, you know, there's so much technical work that speaks to the mid 80s mm-hmm. when you know and i and i love that era of filmmaking where you know you actually have animatronics you have matte paintings you have so much uh, artistic creativity mm-hmm. going into the sets like it's a gorgeous film to look at and i uh, also really love fruza balk in the movie um great. you know i have enough great words <laughs> to say about her i'm sure but uh 
Like, the one thing that wasn't that great was the, uh... I mean, they were fine, but, like, the sort of group that Dorothy has with her in the movie, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if I loved all those characters. Um, okay, I see what you mean with TikTok and Jack Pumpkinhead and the they, Dom. They're, they're fun, they're fine characters, they're, it's just that, you know, again, we, t- like, it's hard to live up to the movie that yeah. comes before it. You have the Wizard of Oz and you have those big three, the Scarecrow, yeah. the Tin Man, the Lion... And those are such big personalities played so yeah. well that then you suddenly come to return to Oz and that group that kind of is surrounding yeah. her, it's just not quite as strong, at least for me. So um, that was the one drawback that I had with the movie. Well, that's interesting because I've not heard that criticism and it's actually a pretty fair one. Mm. Um, well, I, I first saw Return to Oz, I think I was nine or so as a kid. You know, you, you rent everything from the video store. Yeah. So saw saw that one. It was just kind of buried in the subconscious somewhere. Um, and I had memories of it being this kind of weird movie. It was mm. it was kind of depraved. So it wasn't like a childhood favorite. No. Like, you actually, you watched it and you were kind of like, what is this yeah. thing? Um, but I liked it, though, but still weirded out. Now, when I graduate college, it had been on my mind for some reason. When I graduated, mm. uh, one of the gifts I got was a Netflix subscription. The very first movie I saw was Return to Oz. Huh. So that movie was the beginning of my quote-unquote adulthood post-college <laughs> when you say so adulthood that's sort of when you realize like wow so i've, I've been watching all these films in college and high school yeah. i've been developing my mind mm. this is filmmaking this is <laughs> like so many elements coming together making a very weird product yeah. but something that now i'm having a much i'm having a definite different reaction than when i was a kid it's hard to explain. Like I just, I really connected with the film, seeing it at that stage, and seeing the flaws in it. But also, um, you know, you, you like it for different reasons. You like it as the film on its own. You like it as a companion piece to Wizard of Oz because they're so different. Yeah. And then I began to learn about the production of the film, and that gave me a different kind of appreciation for mm. it. Uh, it's it's only film of its kind that has uh, electric shock therapy and a talking chicken. <laughs> Um, and yeah, uh, outside of maybe a Herzog yeah, movie that we true. haven't seen yet. <laughs> so there, it, it's a weird movie because it has a certain art house appeal to it, despite the juvenile tone, something that people I wouldn't even call it art house. It's more just a, a very, it's a more sophisticated movie in tone and look than a lot of kids movies from that time and i don't get me wrong i love wizard of oz but i feel this dorothy is much more truthful Mm. than judy garland's had you read the books too yes actually i've read the first three books and return to oz is based on the second and third okay so Mm. enough to judge that and yeah actually that's another thing like l frank Baum's books like they're just so weird and like guy has such a bizarre imagination and I think yeah, Return to Oz does a good job capturing, like, these feel like real inanimate objects that are being brought to life. They're, they're definite move. They're, when you look at both Wizard of Oz and Return to Oz, I think you get a, de- a sense of also the different time periods that they were yeah. made. Like, <coughs> Wizard of Oz, I mean, that's a classic MGM-style yeah. musical, you know, with, you know, very pretty songs yeah. and, you know, everything, you know, you go from black and white to technicolor. Yeah. It's meant to be like the movies. Right. You know, like that in of itself from that period of time. Return to Oz, you know, you watch, you look at some of the sets in that movie and I felt like I was looking at 
you know, a Russian communist bloc from that era. There you go. Which, it was 1985. Yeah. So, you know, but then on the other hand, you could, you know, like, the reason it's become kind of a cult film and obviously it didn't get a big success was because, you know, it it was so weird that parents just, maybe they heard reviews or they were just, like, staying away in droves. I think the word of mouth was not positive at the time, and it had a troubled production. There were some kids who, you know, <coughs> pussies. Um, they, yeah. you know, they they <laughs> apparently got scared when they were watching it, and I even heard, read like one, not not a review, but I read one like message board post somewhere where someone remembered when they were like a kid and they got so scared that their mother took them out of the movie and asked for a refund. I mean, I I can believe that because. <laughs> Uh, I I got to see it with an audience uh, a few years back, uh, mm. IFC, and yeah. I mean, even though it was with adults, I was seeing it with like, it it was interesting to get the audience reaction. The first twenty minutes, it's a very kind of almost horror film, like you know the girl getting uh, electric treatment, and it's almost shot like The Shining. And then all of a sudden, we go into a fantasy world, and Belina starts talking, and there was awkward laughter because. It just not laughing at the movie, but just you. It felt so strange. Well, it's a little the, strange going mm-hmm. from that section of the film, uh, which you know, if you were to take that out of context, it could be a movie about like a disturbed child who mm-hmm. you know thinks that she's hearing voices and seeing things mm-hmm. that aren't there and is about to get shock treatment. And then you go from that into a talking chicken. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think mental illness is a theme in the film. I I think that was intentional. Another thing I heard was that Walter Murch, he wanted to make it not only he was a fan of the books, but also he was a fan of that time period of uh, middle America at turn of the century. And he wanted to really capture that. And I, I think mm. um, yeah, only, you do get that movie. sense. Um, and actually, um, those Kansas scenes, the DP was Freddie Francis and then he was fired mm. and David Watkin was the DP during Oz. Oh. And I think nothing against Watkin, but the Kansas scenes look better. Oh, so Freddie Francis shot those scenes Kansas. first. That's interesting. I yeah. When I was watching it, I did notice a subtly different look to the the regular world and then Oz. Yeah, yeah and I could see... Yeah, I could definitely see that. It's... Uh, but, but... So you watch this movie, and so your Oz obsession grows, yeah. right? It was... A lot of it had to do with just... No one else seemed to know about it except me. This movie had this kind of negative reputation, and I just wanted to tell people about it. I think, like, that and Eyes Wide Shut were the two movies I felt that way about. And actually, both of those movies have kind of gotten a better critical reevaluation. I think Eyes Wide Shut time. maybe more than Return yeah. of Oz, you could say. Um, but so you go on, like, a lot of these message boards. You go and find sort of these people who are also into Return to Oz. Yeah. Uh, pretty much. Uh, talking online, I uh, found um, a website, an online community of Oz fans. There, there's a huge, like, Oz fan base of anything related yeah. to that. Like, Yeah, because Oz is its own franchise. You what, know? What's interesting about Oz is, like, every decade, there's, like, a new spin on it. There's The Wiz, there's Wicked, both the novel and the Broadway musical, which are really different mm-hmm. from one another. And then there's, like, Tin Man on Sci-Fi Channel and... Huh, I- I don't remember that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was. Okay, <laughs> that's right. Wow, I just suddenly remembered that they did a whole miniseries. So but, they're always doing know. something new with it. Or Oz the Great and Powerful. Yeah, that that's the newest one. So um, uh, I just, at first I thought like, oh, you know, if, if they ever do like um, 
like a 25 or 30 year DVD of Return to Oz, maybe like I could be like the film historian and I, <laughs> I I'm like Roger Ebert on like the uh. Dark City DVD hmm. and like I'll, I'll do a little documentary for it. And then I thought, you know what? Why wait? I'll just make it right now. And that, that was how that project started. Huh. And it was something I kind of just did on weekends. I took my camcorder and I interviewed people. Um, the only kind of big name I got was John Fricky. Yeah, I remember that from watching the movie that he was a... So he was like the Oz historian. I remember, you know, my first year and a half as a, as a Wizard of Oz fan and having a an Oz picture book and then it said abridgment in it. So I asked my parents what an abridgment was and they said it was a shortened version of the story. And it was like, well, whoa, if there's a longer version, i got to have the longer version. So they went out and bought me the full-length book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. I had the MGM soundtrack album uh, that had come out first in 1956 concurrent with the TV debut. And I was just reveling in all this from November 1956 up until... July or August 1958 and I was walking through Gimbel's department store books department in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin with my mom. There on a shelf was Spine, The Road to Oz and it was like I was only seven but I knew that this was special and I pulled the book off and there's a gorgeous uh, John Arneal painting on the dust jacket of Dorothy the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Lion. And you open it up, and there are all these chapters, you know, with Oz-related titles. And then the back dust jacket flap, the Oz books, and a list of 30 titles, 38 titles, I think, at that point, 39. I don't remember. I remember what the book felt like. I remember what it smelled like. I was so excited. Uh, he lives in right in New York, so it was really easy to get yeah, him. Yeah, it seemed like you were trying to get a lot of like collectors and people mm -hmm. who were sort of Oz buffs or, or even just a few people that I guess were just people who had opinions on Yeah, that. there was a gentleman named Jeff Legacy who I interviewed at the very beginning who, who uh, collects vintage shoes and he makes little ruby slippers out of them. Um, and But in general, it was kind of... It, it was an unusual documentary because I, I didn't get like any celebrities or people actually involved in the film. It was just the average Joe and asking them, what do you yeah. think well, of I guess Return it, Oz? Well, it might have been tough to get people like Feruza Balk, for yeah. example, unless if like, you know, if you're just a guy making a documentary about right. Return to Oz, you know, it, like, I don't know, I guess it's the sort of thing that maybe now, years later, you can kind of look back and wonder like, oh, should I have maybe done this or that with it? But uh, Well, I was thinking, um, the thing is, this was in 2007, and uh, one of the friends I made who had the, the Oz website, he was doing this event in South Carolina. This was around Halloween of 07. And so I kind of wanted to finish the documentary to premiere it at his event. And so I did, and it was okay. Like, it, it wasn't much of an event. And looking back on it, I kind of feel, you know, I didn't have to rush it. I could have kept making that thing for years and years and gotten a lot more interviewees and done something more with it. So... Um, looking back at that documentary, like, um... So did it play, did it just play that festival, or did it yeah. kind of make the rounds? Um, it played at that festival, and then I kind of tried to get it out there a lot, but I was hindered by production value and the fact that I didn't own the rights to any of the footage. Hmm. Um, there's, there's an Oz Museum in Wamego, Kansas that I submitted to, and other festivals. So eventually, I kind of just put it up on YouTube, and it got attention there, and I've... Yeah. I, I met Beatrice Merch, who's uh, daughter of Walter oh, Merch. Nice. Uh, we're so Facebook she, friends. So she saw the movie. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, I, I'm Facebook friends with Pons Mar, who uh, worked on some of the miniatures on the film. Um, I well, Will Vinton. Um, well, it's people like that. Hmm. Now, during this time, were you still in Jersey, or did yeah. you start to maybe think about maybe should I, I should move to New York or something like no, that? No, I was still in Jersey in '07. Hmm. It was uh, I was going into New York every weekend, hmm. but uh, like for <laughs> movies and stuff. No, to film this. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I, this was when I was working on Bill Moyer's journal, and then after that, I, it was Blowback Productions. So I mean, like, I was always New York based. Hmm. But okay. uh, and yeah, I yeah, it's like it's it's interesting if you live around this area. Like I, I always say like, you know, about the kind of filmmaker I am. I'm North Jersey slash New York. Like, yeah. I can't really call I can't you can't really call yourself a full on New York filmmaker, but not fully New Jersey mm-hmm. either. I don't know. Or maybe I don't know if that's how you feel, even uh, though you've been living in New York a while. No, that was how I felt at the time. Um, I, I was also editing it myself on um, my, um, you know, using iMovie on my Mac, and actually, I think I killed the computer oh. making <laughs> this little piece. So your computer's like, I'm melting, I'm melting. <laughs> yeah, perfect, perfect analogy. <laughs> so, so I look back on the joy that got away as uh, kind of a stepping stone. I don't really think of it as my first film. I know hmm. IMDb lists it as such. Um, so um, I guess I'm I'm curious what you thought of it because as as you know, like I, I have it online, but I don't even really remember I have it online. I don't promote it that much. Well, no, I mean, well, from the little I saw of it, like part of it kind of yeah. crapped out, I think, on the site I was watching. But what little I saw of it, it was interesting for sure. I think like it was the kind of work that you could tell that okay, this is a guy that really is passionate about the subject. Uh, he doesn't quite have all of the technical uh, things at his disposal yet, but hopefully, you know, he'll get to that someday. Like, this would have been, like, this could have been a really neat special feature on the DVD. Thank you. Probably. Like, that's sort of what I gleaned from it, the fact that, you know, you have someone who's taken a lot of knowledge, and I think you even, I saw you, did you shoot the footage of the Return to Oz on stage? No. No, okay. oh, oh, so that was taken from somewhere else. Oh, you mean the production? Yeah, because I thought you showed someone like performing Return to Oz. Yeah, on there was. Uh, actually, I'll give him a shout out. Uh, he was only fourteen years old at the time. His name was Sean Pollock. He was. Oh, okay. So it was that. Guy. Yeah, he was an actor and collector, and he had a great collection for a fourteen-year-old kid. And he had done a production of Return to Oz for the stage, and uh, he had footage of it, so I used it. Mm. And yeah, I'm, I'm still in touch with Sean now. Now he's in his 20s, and he's, I, I think, very active in theater. Sweet. Yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, like, like with a lot of us, uh, like when you start out, mm-hmm. like, it's like when you look back on it, you think, okay, I wish, you know, obviously I wish I could have done this or that better, but you see the real core of the idea working out. I I agree that it's more like a special feature than it is really a movie movie. Um, How long did it come out to? Like sixty minutes? Yeah, a little over an hour. Okay. Um. So, uh, I'm I'm proud of it in some parts, mm. and I I it's about a subject I care about. Also, cinema of the 1980s, which mm. I care about as well. So, that that yeah, part do, of it's me. Yeah, I saw you address that a bit. You know, the fact that you know here was you know a time where fancy movies were reaching a kind of apex yeah uh with audiences i mean just around that time you had the never-ending story yeah. you had legend uh the dark crystal. crystal labyrinth you had all these movies which you know some of them were more successful than others but you have this sort of time period where 
real technicians using their hands making stuff, you know, right before, you know, computers, which they, you know, that, that technology, Mm -hmm. you could argue that has an own process to it that is really special, but it's just different than what they were doing in the eighties. I think Return to Oz was also interesting. It came at that period, right? as Claymation and Ray Harryhausen was kind of on the way out and animatronics yeah. was on the way in. Yeah. It was kind of like when you watch, uh, the Sam Raimi evil dead movies, yeah. I feel like that's kind of like the last gasp of Claymation in mm-hmm. that style. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually interesting connection with evil dead. Um, something that I think might've helped return to Oz and it's mentioned in the documentary is, uh, it might have been interesting if they'd started the movie with maybe like a four-minute montage retelling the story of Wizard of Oz with this new Dorothy and this new Emerald City. And I think that would have helped audiences connect with it a little mm-hmm. better. So, like, you have a reference to this yeah, Emerald City. Yeah, I think, you know, it probably didn't help people that, mm-hmm. you know, you're watching this movie, it's called Return to Oz, and it picks up, you know, Dorothy a couple months after Return to Oz, and she can't sleep, and, you know, it almost... It's like a childhood version of someone who's gone through, like, war and has PTSD, <laughs> you know, if you think about it. And it, it, it's a sequel that references events of the first movie, but they happen a little different. It's a slightly it's, different continuity. In a weird way, like, Return to Oz is a much better version of something that, like, Tim Burton, I think, tried to do with Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Where I, that's a sequel to Alice in Wonderland. But you don't know that going in. Like, right. it's just called... Alice in Wonderland, but when you walk in, it's like, oh wait, Alice already went to Wonderland, and she's coming back, and wait, Mm -hmm. what's this now? Wait, it's it's like Lord of the Rings? (laughs) (laughs) She's having a bad, so... Yeah, or Hook might be another example, which is a sequel to Peter Pan. Yeah, that is true. I, I, yeah, Hook's one of those movies that I guess Mm. maybe some people find underrated. I don't know if (laughs) I love it quite as much, but it's kind of, doesn't Mm -hmm. hold up, but... Um, but um, that that idea of the four minute montage, it's kind of like what Evil Dead Two does at the beginning. That it yeah. it retells you the story of Evil Dead, but kind of different. I I don't think for Wizard of Oz people need to be retold the story. I think most people going in Return to Oz, mm-hmm. hopefully they've seen Wizard yeah. of Oz since it's you know the most popular yeah. film arguably ever yeah. made. But again, it's just then you have the disconnect that you've already kind of set up that. People going in, it's like, all right, I love that Wizard of Oz. What do you got for me? Mm-hmm. You know, you're already kind of setting yourself up that you have to deliver big. Yeah. And you know, Walter March stepped up and he delivered a you know a gorgeous looking film. You know, whether the substance fully reached that place, I don't know, but it's still a good movie. I think it's a movie that has. Um, it, it tells a fantasy story on the surface, but it has this layer of sadness to it. Um, something people don't realize on the first viewing, but you'll notice it more second or third viewing is the score by David Shire. I noticed the score in parts. Which, there are some, there are some beautiful sections in there. I, I think it's one of the best and, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's an unusual movie. Uh, I think, I think it's a very beautiful movie. If yeah. You really it's the kind of film that I think in a way it, it probably will appeal now to people more at, who are our age, who, mm-hmm may or may not have seen it when it came out and now they watch it and they're like, wow, this is, this is pretty weird. This mm-hmm. is, you know, Oh wow. What's with all those heads? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and actually when Pan's Labyrinth came out, I made a connection to that as well. I thought they were similar. I can definitely see that. I think that Guillermo del Toro is a filmmaker who follows a bit in that sort of fantasy style mm-hmm. of, uh, 
Yeah, of, of really smart pictures mm. in that vein. Um, so, all right, so you do return to Oz, and when does the... So then, you know, it's it's another couple of years, then I think, until Finding Nirvana comes out. Okay, right? yes, so now... So what's, what's the process Now it, it really begins. Hey, I need to make a little speech. Tonight, we are gathered in Mom's old house. And this is our place of routine and care and love. I'm going to take my pants off. Um, so, and because and yeah, and you and you decided like I'm not gonna make a short like a lot of filmmakers right. start out making a short. I'm gonna jump right in and make a feature, right? Yeah. So it's now uh, middle or uh, early summer of '08, and um, with Fighting Nirvana, the plot of the film and the making of the film overlap a lot. Basically, okay. yeah, I, so how this come about? I mean, because I never really heard this story. I uh, have you seen the movie? Of course. Okay. So, I, yeah, I watched that the other night as well. So much like the characters in the movie, I was like, I'm two years out of college. Nothing is happening for me. I'm disillusioned. I got to just do it. I got to just make a movie. Um, and I chose uh, for the plot. It was like a, a half-hearted play from that playwriting class I took in high school. Uh, I reworked that a lot. Oh, okay. And the idea was to write something that could be shot very quickly. Even I, I thought... we. I was naive enough to think we could shoot it in one or two nights. Um, we ended up doing it in three nights, so that's actually which is still not so pretty bad. incredible. Yeah, I mean, you have you must have had to. Did you rehearse your actors like to yeah for that? Um, so <laughs> I mean, it, you know, because then at that point, it really is a little bit more like putting on a play than actually yeah. putting on like because you know movies, even you know low budget ones, yeah. they still like. Because when you, I heard, I hear the story. I think back to like the making of Clerks. Yeah. And you hear about you know a filmmaker again from Jersey, you know, wanting to do a movie, you know, really quickly, mm-hmm. you know, subject that he knows, you know, people that he knows. That still took him like three weeks. Well, I should just mention. So the plot is that four young people spend the night in this old house, which is the house of the mother of the two girls. Um, and over the course of the night, they talk a lot and work out old wounds and there may or may not be a treasure and there may or may not be a supernatural element. So um, we well, we had one location that fell apart at, towards the end. So then we got a house in Peekskill, New York. OK. And I, yeah, I wasn't sure where it was because mm-hmm. like you showed the outside of the house, mm-hmm. but it could be, you know, any house anywhere, which maybe was yeah. the idea. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's no real sense of place uh, in the story. It could be anywhere. Well, it also, because, I mean, it takes place at night, so, you know, I guess it might have been difficult to get a lot of exterior mm. shots, unless if that's yeah. what you're looking for. So we got, I have four actors. Um, I, I should mention, like, I just put up an ad on Craigslist and Mandy, um, and I, I was looking for a producer, and the gentleman I worked with was... Uh, he really worked more in uh, reality TV and cooking shows, and he hmm. kind of shot the movie like a cooking show, which I'm not too happy with. So you weren't. So did you? You weren't. D, did you have like a choice of DP on that? He was the DP. And, oh, so the producer was the DP. And he that's, would. That's he, unusual. And he would have also been the editor, um, but there were things happened during post. Yeah, but the point is, is that. Um, well, watching it, I, I don't know if I got the sense exactly that it was TV. I just more got the sense that, okay, here here are these actors, mm. you know, let's shoot it, and, you know, we, we'll have some, you know, stylistic choices, but 
again, it's it's kind of a talking heads movie. Yeah. So make sure you just get the actors talking and you know make sure it's in focus. That that was pretty much it. Um, <laughs> did, but did you, as director, did you have any kind of thoughts that like let's be a little more stylistically ambitious in this part or this part, and then maybe it got shot down? Uh, I, I would say there was a lot of ideas like we could do this or we could do it that way, but in the process of making it, we were just trying to get it made. What so, did you shoot it on? That, I believe, was a VX100. Oh, VX100. Is yeah. that different? I guess it's pretty much the same as a DVX in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, so, again, before DSLRs. Um, yeah. I mean, those cameras aren't that bad. It's just that compared now to what we have, yeah. it's like, okay, I could see why those have kind of gone by the wayside. <laughs> you know. So, uh, I mean, looking back on it, like, it was just... You know, we, we planned this one night, pull an all-nighter. I, I believe all of us were under 25. I think maybe 27 was the eldest of the entire crew. Yeah. So we were just at this age where, like, you could do that. You could live on fried chicken and pizza and coffee. <laughs> and it was fun. That was, that was your craft services. Let's call it Domino's. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, we, we start shooting the movie. And it, after a while, it became obvious we were not going to yeah. finish in that first yeah. night. You had some good actors in there, though. Yeah, so then the actors said, like, oh, well, it turns out I'm free next Sunday. Yeah, I am too, I am too. So then we shot that second day. And then later they confessed to me, we knew you weren't going to finish it in one night. So we we picked in advance <laughs> that we would all be free that Sunday. <laughs> they they kind of conspired yeah. to yeah. make a better schedule behind yeah. your back. <laughs> so, so that was a situation where my not-so-great planning kind of dictated a lot of how the quality of the film mm. came out. And um, a, a lot of the scenes, specifically the scenes in the bedroom and stuff, we mm -hmm. were kind of just rushing towards the end to get done. Um, I think uh, the the lighting was so-so so during shot, the So you dark. shot in order? We more or less shot in order. Okay. W once it was clear we couldn't finish in one night, we then jumped around a mm -hmm. bit. Um, I think, the, yeah, the scenes outside, the, once they actually go leave the house, those scenes look better than the rest of the movie because you yeah, had sunlight. Maybe a little bit. Um, yeah. and also I think like the, the very last scene, um, well, I won't spoil the ending, but a, a scene where, uh, the girl wakes up and there's music and there's voiceover. Yeah. I really love how that all comes together. So I feel mm -hmm. like the best parts of the movie are the tail end of it. Um, so we shot that in July, August of 08. And then there's a long period where basically nothing happened. Uh, oh. So around like December is when post actually begins. That sometimes can happen though if you're just you know trying to get your ducks in order. And, exactly. You know, it's either things happen very quickly yeah. or they take a little longer than you expect. So um, I have to give props to the editor Rod Weber who came in, and I always say I know nothing about this movie is Oscar worthy except the editing because that <laughs> Rod was able to take this incoherent footage and make an actual narrative feature that deserves an Oscar. You shot well. It seemed like you had gotten enough stuff that he could work with. I mean, it's uh, you know, even the I've actually heard people just say that Star Wars originally mm. was kind of a mess and yeah somehow it became like this masterpiece in editing it was saved in editing i've heard yeah so so too. um yeah during that time it's now december of 08 and i had to shoot uh some pickup shots but now it's winter now there's snow on the ground and the story kind of obviously is set in the summer because you know they they say it's hot in here and when they go outside you see how green it is 
So it, it was tough to like get some shots. Like I, I could go through the movie and see like, oh, that shot of the moon that was shot at a different yeah, time. Yeah, I, I remember that shot. That, <laughs> that was like one of those shots where it's like, is that the moon or is that like a street lamp? Or... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean that with yeah. all, all, all. That's respect. fine. Uh, but like, so what was the movie about though for you? Was it like just these kids trying to work through their stuff and their relationships, or because like you have in the movie occasionally they hear the voice of the ghost yeah or i think it's like they're it's not the mother or something right um you know i remember who it was like they hear the ghost of someone who's haunting the house well they hear a ghost uh, or they hear something that may or may not be a ghost it's left ambiguous and then the film ends with something is uh resolved for them there clearly there was some kind of possibly supernatural influence and so it would seem that a ghost was looking out for them. Um, I, I would say uh, I was definitely there was a Bergman influence there, and that's why it's mm. so theatrical and there's a lot of long speeches. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's Fanny and Alexander exactly, but I liked the idea of well, their. He had, well, he he's had other movies yeah. that are just nothing but character talk. Like he did a movie through a glass uh, darkly. Well, that there's also another movie which a lot of people haven't seen called After the Rehearsal. Which all yeah, takes place 80. on. Mm-hmm. It was made actually right after Fane Alexander, okay. and this was sort of like, all right, Fane Alexander, all right, you're saying this is your goodbye to filmmaking. It's not your real goodbye to right. filmmaking. You're still gonna work a while, and this was like his first like long goodbye movie mm-hmm. where it's just it all takes place on a stage uh, after rehearsal, and it just follows like this theater director and this actress and uh then this other actress who from his past is in a flashback it's very bergman it sounds like birdman a little yeah <laughs> actually now that i think about it it is yeah less bergman and more birdman <laughs> now i kind of want to see the par- now you're just making me think of a yeah. parody of birdman bergman birdman together <laughs> uh, I people wouldn't probably get it but that'd be great. no they probably would no. be like Wait, wait. Why is Birdman playing chess with mm. death? That doesn't make any. Sense. <laughs> but right. so, so the idea was, um, I guess, ultimately, what the film's about. It's about finding out who you are and coming to at peace with things within yourself, getting over death, death of a parent. Um, but I, I liked that there was this, uh, and I guess Fanny Alexander does this as well. That there is this unexplained element in the film, something that apparently was supernatural there that can't be explained in any way other than the supernatural yeah. and that that's left open. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, the, that's what I was going for with that part of the film. Yeah, yeah, that that's definitely something I got there too. Um, so yeah, so you finally finished the film. Yeah. You kind of put it out there. Do you have any hopes like, all right, maybe this will be what will launch me or I've just made this little film. I'm trying to work out, you know, what I'm trying to say as a filmmaker, try to find my voice, you know, hopefully some people see it. I uh, approached it, I guess, the same way you approached Green Eyes, that I thought, oh, this is this is going to launch me. This is my big <laughs> film. I'm, I'm putting this out there to be discovered. Oh. And then I, while the film's in post, already I'm disappointed with it because I, oh. I, it wasn't exactly what I wanted it to be. It's not shot quite the way I wanted it to be. Um, at that point, I'm just happy to get something made and I get it out there. Sure. Um, and it gets, it gets kind of a muted response. Mm. Like people like it. It, it never really kind of got love and raves, but, uh, it, it got a generally good response. 
I've actually come to appreciate it more over time because now when I look at it, I'm not judging it as this great masterpiece that's uh, great things will happen. You're not trying to raise your expectations to a certain level. You're kind of seeing Mm -hmm. it more now for what it was and sort of like the good things that genuinely were good in there. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think it's a good film actually. And I think there's things in it I'm proud of. And, uh, for what it was, um, so someone once asked me like, well, would you ever remake it with a bigger budget? And I said, no, because the film (laughs) captures who I was at 23. The film did it, it successfully got a voice across. And sometimes, you know, filmmakers who are just starting out, you know, some people might think, okay, I got to make, the big thing right yeah. now and i that's the thing that's gonna launch me and then you know i make the little gritty movie and then i get to make the comic book movie yeah. but you know in reality what's really important is just i, I think finding your voice really. exactly i think it's more about just trying to figure out you know what is this thing that i'm grappling with the cinema mm-hmm. you know how am i going to use it and make it my own because you know there are just so many movies out there that's really more about how are you going to define your terms yeah. with it? So, I, like, when I watch Return to Oz and Finding Nirvana together, like, I know you see them as two different things, but yeah. I sort of see it's like, okay, this is your film school. Yeah, because I would say, like, my education at Syracuse was kind of compromised. Um, I feel like that's where I learned with making Fighting Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, what I... did you think of the film? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna say Pat like. Point by point, this yeah. is what I think. I think it's generally a fun little movie. I mean, it's it's a little hard to see certain scenes because they are a little dark. Yeah, um, well, that was another thing. I like, mean, again, but that's not to knock the movie too strongly. Yeah. It's just that's what you had to work with. That's what, exactly. When I watch some of my early work, I'm like, man, you know, these things called lights are <laughs> so impressive when you well, use them. <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, like, that whole middle section of the film where there's a blackout, we kind of tried to do naturalistic lighting with candles and stuff, and it depends on the screen that you watch it on. On some TV and computer screens, it's almost pitch black. Mm. And people started complaining to me, saying, like, you know, I tried to watch the movie, and there's parts in the middle where I can't, and I thought they were exaggerating. And then I saw it on different screens, and I saw that it looked different on different screens. Yeah, it can be, you know, when you have a film of that resolution, you have to be kind of careful how you... uh you know, graded, I guess, or yeah. maybe you didn't even, I don't know if you had grading technology for that, but it's, uh, uh, uh that kind of footage <laughs> is so sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's very low res, but you know, mm-hmm. you do it, but in a way, I mean, you can get a, a interesting look with that. I yeah. find like that, you know, obviously now I would always want to shoot, you know, with really good quality cameras, but that does still have a place, especially when you're still learning. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun little movie. I, like, in a weird way, I kind of want, like, watching it, I was like, do I do I like the dramatic parts a little bit more than the comedy parts? But then this line that, uh, what's it, Christopher Cloco? Yeah. Uh, he has some pretty, he has some funny lines. He has a really mm-hmm. good deadpan delivery. He's kind of like your, your Bill Murray of yeah. the movie. You know, he's kind of like, oh, geez, what am I doing here? <laughs> and, you know, I, I have to give Chris credit because he really kind of created that character. Like, mm, So did he, so did your actors, like bring other things from the page do you think was that sort of a process i would say him more than any other did because the 
I thought of the four characters, Jeff was kind of the least interesting, and I thought no one's going to want to play that, and he huh. he wanted to play that you know more than the other guys. So. That's cool when an actor does that; they kind of take something and make it their own. So yeah, like all all pretty much all of Jeff, all the little things he does, like like in the script, he has a line that's I I think I'm falling asleep now, and Chris delivers it as Hey, I think no, yeah, I'm definitely falling asleep, <laughs> and he does he does that throughout the whole movie. Yeah. And just, I think, when we were filming it, all of us kind of looked at each other and we knew, like, Chris is the star here. Like, even though it, it, it's, like, the the fourth least important character, but it's the, well, he's yeah, the breakout. He, he's, uh, he's Bill Murray and Caddyshack. He's, yeah. like, the guy who, you know, you don't think this character's kind of a nothing, but he's going to really come out swinging. And... Maybe you've been in the dark too much. No, 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 no. There is a ghost here. Look at this. I'm bleeding. I didn't know the lights were going to go out. Everything was just fine before that happened. You think it's the dark that's turning my sister into a bitch? Wait a minute. You do love her. You have a little crush. Ugh. My life isn't your business. Got that? I know one thing we like to do when we can't sleep. Could you get it up the first time? Tonight's probably not the best night for that. Mm, I'll change that in a few seconds. In one night, I've seen the worst out of all three of you. And I just met you two girls. 